We are continuing our study of Simha. We are in class number 85. Specifically, we're studying the Amida as it applies to our relationships with each other, specifically marriage, or maybe most importantly marriage, and our connection to Hashem. As we had mentioned some classes back, that marriage altogether is a mashal, is supposed to serve as an example of our relationship with the Creator of the world. Last week, we spoke about the word in the Amidah that we open up with, Elohenu. And we explained how that word is deeper than just saying God. Elohenu means our God, which has a very big implication in our relationship with Hashem. Elohenu means He is thinking about us. Elokeinu means that we have a special place in his heart. Like any meaningful relationship, as we explained last week as it applies to marriage, there needs to be a loyalty in a relationship. A loyalty has two sides that are committed to each other's success and happiness to protect each other from people in the street, from any evil or any damage that can happen. There's a word in Hebrew called berit. <coughs> berit in English is translated as covenant. I'm not really sure what that word means. I just know it's the translation of berit. But... <clears throat> What I understand is that a berit is usually explained as an agreement. When you have two parties and they make a berit, they make a treaty. Basically, it's an agreement that they're going to get along, they're going to help each other. But I'd like to explain what the word berit really means in the context, not just in the translation of the word. Because in the Torah, there's something interesting about how a berit is made. We see, for example, Hashem made with Abraham Avinu a berit. We see in Yirmiyahu Navi talks about people making a berit. How would they make a berit? This is interesting. They would take an animal whether it's a bird or whatever kind of animal, they would split it in half. They would put it on two sides and they would walk in between the two halves. This is the way they enter a berit with each other. Interesting. Again, two pieces of an animal on two sides and they walk in between. Why would that be the right way to make a berit? Maybe it will actually help us even understand what the word means. The Sefer Ikarim, one of the great Rishonim, writes 
that a berit is much more than a friendship. It's much more than an agreement. A berit is where the two parties basically pledge to each other that just like these two pieces, the only way, I'll explain, I'll read it for you. He says, Kemo, just like those two pieces, they were one body, in a living organism, a living animal. And each part would feel the pain of the other part. A live animal, if the left leg is hurting, the right leg also hurts. All the parts are connected. That's when they were alive. And the only thing that separated between these two parts, that they should be one, only death. Ken. Sheneha anashim, two people, korte haberit, that make a berit, yihiyu keguf ehad, they need to be like one body, bihiyotam bahayim, so long as they're alive, velo yafrid benehem rak hamavet, only death will separate our feelings for each other. Sheihiye imo betzara, if you're in Sorrow, I will feel the same way. I should feel the pain that you feel. Just like a body feels when any of its parts are hurting. Until death do us part. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe it came from this explanation of Berit. The reason why they put two sides of a live animal and walk in between is to express what it is that we are committing to. We are committing in a berit to become one body and to feel each other's pain and to feel each other's needs and only death will make that no longer happen. Let me share with you an example in the Torah where two people made such a berit. It says in the Pasuk we just read a few weeks ago, Vaimaher Avraham Haohela El Sarah. Avraham rushes to the tent of Sarah. Vayomer, and he says, Mahari, hurry, Lushi, sorry, excuse me, Mahari Shelosh Seim, a certain amount of Weight or <clears throat> of wheat, kemah solet. He makes a very specific request. Get me kemah. Kemah means flour. Solet means fine flour. What's kemah? You want kemah or you want solet? Which one you want? You want regular flour or you want fine flour? They don't work together. Kemah solet. 
comes the Gemara in Baba Metzia and says this obvious problem, Ketiv Kemah Uktiv Solet. Which one is it? What did Abraham want? Amar Biyitzhak. Now pay attention. You may not understand what he's saying. It says Rabbi Yitzhak, Mikan, from here, Shehaisha, that a woman or a wife, Tsara Aineha Beorhim, Yoter Min Haish. She's more careful with giving out food or money to the guests. She's more careful than her husband. I mean, her husband's ready to give whatever they have. And the wife is not so easy. She's a little cheaper than him. That's the right word. It's a little harder for her to give of the family possessions than her husband. That's what you see from this pasuk. Now, how do you see that in this pasuk? So it says Rashi, Alava Shalom. Because he amra kemah. She said, let's just give them flour. Vehu solet. He said, no, no, give fine flour. That's the way that she explains and the gemarot that we have on the shelves. However, old texts of gemarot have Rashi opposite. Which means, he said, Kemah, he said flour, and she said fine flour, which seems to be against the Gemara's rule. The fine flour is better, and now she's the one that wants fine flour? And by the way, the Pasuk supports this explanation more than the ones that we have, because the Pasuk says, Vayomer, he said, bring Kemah solet. It would make sense that he's the one that says kemah, regular flour, and she's the one that says solet. So, but how does it make sense? How do you see from here that a woman is more stingy with the guests than a man? How do you see that? The opposite. She wanted to give solet. That's the question. But if we know what the word berit means and we understand what a marriage is supposed to look like, so then we wouldn't have this question. Because when Abraham came to Sarah, he knows exactly how Sarah feels about giving guests. So you know what he says? He says something that she is able to do. He says... Kemah. And when Sarah hears Kemah, she knows what Abraham really wants. So she says, Solet. That's called a berit of two people. A berit of two people is that I take your shoes and think about things from your end just as much as mine. That's a beautiful example of the berit of Abraham and Sarah. Anyway, going forward, today we're going to discuss a different marriage. 
a marriage between us and our Creator. It could be that this is a surprise to many people, that we're supposed to be married to our Creator. It could be something you never heard before in your life, and you went to Yeshiva too. Before I tell you about this marriage, I first want to prove to you that it's all about the marriage. I think if you ask most people, good people especially, what's your mission in life? What's your purpose in life? Probably, if they were decent people and they had some sort of goal, they'd say, they'd say I want to do good. I want to be good. I want to do good. Which is a beautiful thing. It's definitely better than being bad. But really, that's not the purpose of a Jew in this world. Although doing good is beautiful and definitely part of the goal, but it's not really the ultimate goal. Let me give you a little Torah source for that. It says that we read, we read a few weeks ago about the famous Akedat Yitzhak. When Abraham Avinu was ready to sacrifice his son. When the Torah introduces this story, it says, Veha Elohim Nisa et Avraham. Hashem challenged Abraham. So clearly the Torah is telling you that this story was the challenge to Abraham Avinu, not to Yitzhak. Because it introduces it, not the challenge of Abraham and Yitzhak. Hashem Nisa Elohim Nisa et Avraham. But when you look at the story, you realize that Yitzhak had a very big challenge himself. He was not a little child. He was already 37 years old. You're talking about a mature young man who is very strong, perhaps stronger than his old father. He had a mind of his own. He had a future of his own. He was not commanded by the Creator. He didn't have to do anything. And he's going with his father thinking they're going to bring a korban. He has no idea. His father doesn't even tell him. And then they get somewhere on the road and he says, Dad, by the way, where is the animal? Where is the korban? And he says, you're the animal. That's right. Try, that. Try telling your children that. I bet you can't get your children to do much more simple things than that. And you know what I've, you know what Yitzhak answers? Nothing. Most amazing story. But it's for a different class. He doesn't say a word. What kind of hinuch is that? The father says, you're going to be the sacrifice. And Yitzhak says, okay, great. If you say so, Dad. And they move on. Yitzhak doesn't say a word to the rest of the story. Don't you think that's a pretty big challenge? That he's willing to die why does the Torah not mention the challenge of Yitzhak? In our minds, it's at least equal. Certainly it's hard to kill your son, but it's not so easy to die either. So why is it that Yitzhak is not mentioned? I'd like to share with you a very well-known principle in Judaism. The Gemara says, it's a surprising principle, the Gemara says, Gadol Metsuve ve'ose. Greater 
is the one who is commanded and does from the one who isn't commanded and does. So a very simple example. Let's say it's a little chilly out. Sukkot time. We know men are obligated to sit in the sukkah. They cannot eat outside the sukkah. Women are exempt from sitting in the sukkah. So a husband goes out. He has to. He's commanded. His wife says, I know I'm not commanded, but why would I want to miss out on the mitzvah of sukkah if I could do it? She gets a mitzvah if she goes. So she puts on her coat, goes outside with her husband. Says the Gemara, our Torah considers his action greater than hers. Why? Because he was commanded. And she wasn't commanded. commanded. The one who's commanded gets greater reward because it's a greater accomplishment. Now obviously, if you would have asked us, we would have thought exact opposite. We would have thought someone who's commanded and does, okay, they're commanded, they had no choice. But someone who does it without a commandment, if my son would get me a cup of tea because I commanded him, that's nice. But if he, when he sees I want a cup of tea, goes on his own without my commandment, I would think that's more beautiful, that's greater. Why is it that the one who's commanded is considered doing a bigger mitzvah? That's the question. The answer to this question, the Rishonim discussed this question. The Ritba says that when a person does a mitzvah, so there are two parts. If you're commanded, there are two things that you're accomplishing. Number one, you're doing something good. But something more than that is, is that you are connecting to Hashem. How are you connecting to Hashem? Because He commanded you. There's a metzaveh. He is the one that's commanding. There's a mitzvah. That's the commandment. And then there is the metzaveh. That's you. The mitzvah that Hashem commanded, when you do a mitzvah, a commandment, you're not just doing a good deed. You see, in Judaism, good deeds are nice. But there's something greater than good deeds. It's called mitzvot. People erroneously translate mitzvot as good deeds. Mitzvot are not good deeds. They may be good, but they're not good deeds. Mitzvot are commandments. When a baby is born and we bless the baby, we say... We bless him. la Torah mitzvot maasim tovim. Maasim tovim are good deeds. Mitzvot is something way above maasim tovim. Mitzvot is not just I'm doing something good. It's more than that. I am connecting to my Creator. We have a relationship here. He commanded me I'm not just doing something nice. You know, there are many people in the world that do maasim tovim. Many, many people. So many people that are driving ambulances. They are firefighters. They are 
all types of volunteers, all types of good people doing good things. But doing good in life doesn't make you connected to the Creator. In fact, you could be an atheist and still do good things. Good things comes from the, the soul of the person who has a conscience that's thirsty for meaning. I want to do good in my life. I want to step up and help people. I want to go save children. I want to go save the whales. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is, but there's something in me that's pushing me to be good. By the way, it's one of the greatest signs of the soul that all of us, all of us, want to do good. Physical things don't have desires to do good. Our soul desires to do good and to be good. But you could be good and do good your whole life, but have no connection to the creator of the world. Because you're doing good to satisfy your soul, but you have no marriage with the creator of the world. The reason why it's greater to be mitzvah is because not only are you doing good, but you are connecting, you have now a greater relationship with the Creator of the world. For example, when I do a mitzvah, so my thoughts are, Hashem, you told me to do this? Of course, I am committed to you. My pleasure, I want to do it. I keep Shabbat. A pure Jew does not keep Shabbat because Shabbat is beautiful. That is not a pure Jew. A pure Jew keeps Shabbat because Hashem said, because it's a mitzvah, not because it's ma'asim tovim, and not because it's enjoyable. Of course, it could be enjoyable. It should be enjoyable. The opposite, if you're not enjoying it, you're doing something wrong. There's nothing wrong with enjoying, and there's nothing wrong with even knowing that you're going to enjoy. But why are you doing it? Why do you do a mitzvah? Why are you honoring your parents? You know why? Because Hashem said Now, it's beautiful to honor your parents. It's the right thing to honor your parents. But there's something even bigger than that. It's called a mitzvah. Kaved et et The Gemara says, unlike probably what we would have thought, I'm not sure what you think on this subject, but the Gemara says that if you walk by a non-kosher restaurant, it smells really good. Or even if it doesn't smell that good, you see... Nice pictures on the window. You see a very good item there. Very good price also. Walk by McDonald's or one of these stores. Looks great. Coming at you. And again, everything looks perfect. What's the right attitude when you walk by McDonald's? So probably most good Jews would say, it's disgusting. Ugh, can't look at that. I can't even walk into the store. That's probably what you would think. You think righteous Jews would say, can't handle it. I got to cross the street. But says the Gemara that a real Jew, authentic Jew, says, oh, I wish I could eat that. That looks so good. And it's so cheap also. So it's a good price. You get, I told you, you get a burger, fries, and a drink for 99 cents. Kosher store, you walk in the door, it's already $10. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't say anything yet. So you have good food, 
Don't, don't let anyone convince you that the food that's not kosher is not good. It's very good. It tastes great. It's beautiful. But what should I do? What should I do? Hashem told me I shouldn't eat it. That is the right attitude of mitzvot. I wish I could do it. But I can't. What can I do? Because, why is that the right attitude? Because we're not here just to do good things. We're here to do mitzvot. Because mitzvah, actually the word mitzvah has its root in the word sabata, which means to bind, to connect. What connects me to my creator? Not good deeds. What connects me is my mitzvot. So that's a beautiful thing to keep in mind in general, by the way. That when you do a mitzvah, forget, today we're not talking about taking on new mitzvot. The mitzvot that you already do. You pray, you light nerot, all the beautiful mitzvot that you do. Before you do the mitzvah, you say, Borei Olam, I'm about to do a mitzvah that you commanded me. So beautiful. That's why if you look in Sidurim, they have before tefilot. They say, Leshem Yehud. Before they pray Minha, before they pray Arbit, they say, okay, Hashem, I'm now coming to pray this tefillah, or I'm coming to do this mitzvah, because you commanded. Unfortunately, sometimes the L'shem Yehud again becomes like an automatic. We don't realize what we're saying. But bottom line is, it's an attitude of a great person. A great marriage is a marriage where people do for each other. And that's what we get when we do mitzvot with Hashem. It's much more than being good. It's creating a tremendous relationship with the creator of the world. You could turn that with everything that you're doing today. You're coming to class today. You're coming to learn. Why are you coming? I bet if someone asks, you say, oh, I love it. I hope. Or, 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 or I enjoy it. Or, or something like that. Now you're allowed to love it, you're allowed to enjoy it. But that's not why you should come learn. You should come learn because it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to learn. All the mitzvot that we do, again, we should enjoy them. It's nice to enjoy them. And they are enjoyable. But that should not be our goal. That's not why we do it. Because there's something greater that we would be missing, which is the relationship. Perhaps that's why the Torah highlights Abraham and not Yitzhak. Because Abraham did something greater than Yitzhak. While they both did a great act of sacrifice of doing something good that the Creator wants, obviously Yitzhak realized that Hashem wants it, so he did it. But he was missing one thing. He was missing the relationship in the act. Because Abraham was commanded and Yitzhak was not commanded. Gadol metzuveh ve'oseh. Abraham was commanded. And therefore the act that he did was not just a good thing. It was something that brought him closer to the creator of the world. As it says in the Pasuk, when Hashem told him, enough, we're not going to sacrifice him. Hashem says, Atayadati. Now I know, Kiere Elohim ata. Not now I know you're a good guy. No. Now I know that we have a relationship. Now I know you have an awe of myself 
and we have this berit going on with each other. Am Yisrael has a berit with the creator of the world. This is maybe some hidushim for people, but honestly, it's like Aleph Bet. It's not Gimel or Dalet even. It's really right at the core of what it means to be part of Am Yisrael. That we have a berit. Hashem says to Abraham Avinu, Vahakimoti et beriti beni ubenecha. I have a berit with you. Remember, a berit is two sides who live their life very much aware and concerned about the other. Hashem promises Abraham, Beni ubenecha uben zaracha. Me and you and your children and your offspring, we have a berit that is eternal. It's not a berit that will ever stop. We'll get back to that in a moment. We say in every prayer of the holidays, You chose us from all the nations. Ahavta otanu, which means that you saw something special about us. Veratsita banu, you wanted a closer relationship with us. To some minds today, that may sound a little uncomfortable that the Creator would choose a nation from other nations. But don't make a mistake. It doesn't mean exactly what it says. God didn't choose us. More appropriately is we chose Him. Avraham Avinu, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Avotenu, our foundation, these were people that chose the Creator of the world as their mission in life. In fact, in the words of Hazal, they're known as the chariots of Hashem, the Merkava. What does that mean, the chariots of Hashem? It means just like a chariot carries someone who's riding in it and takes them places. The Avot, these great people we call our fathers, they took the creator of the world and they were the chariot that brought him down into this planet. You see, when the creator made the world, he had in mind that there would be different levels of life in this world. For humans, you could live a life, a beautiful life, again, a beautiful, wonderful life of Bene Noah, of keeping seven mitzvot. You could live a beautiful life, you have a purpose, keep your seven mitzvot, you will get eternity for it. It's a beautiful way to live life. That's why we never, ever, had in our history missionaries. Why would we have missionaries? We think you're doing a great job. Just live by your laws. But when Hashem created the world, He wanted to give as well an opportunity for those who wanted to live an elevated life, 
a life that would be more godly than just seven mitzvot. It would be a hard life. It would be a challenging life. You have to work harder. You have to sweat more. More is asked of you. More responsibilities. That's why when a goy comes and says, I want to convert, we tell him, no need to convert. It's not an easy life. You're doing well where you are. We push as much as we can. Not because we don't want him in the club. Not because we want to be special in that sense. Because in reality, keeping 613 mitzvot is a very big job. It's not like we think. You know, we, me and you, in American times, if we do a mitzvah one time out of five the right way, we think we're doing good. Like if we don't talk Lashon Hara for 10 minutes at 12 a.m., so, so we're good. We took on 10 minutes every day at 12 a.m. We don't talk Lashon Hara. And we think we have captured Lashon Hara. That's, what we, that's American style religion. You understand? Do the best you can. A little bit. Okay. You're doing good. You're eating a little kosher. Also good. You keep a little bit of Shabbat. Okay. That's, that's an American system. But if you look in the Torah, there's no such thing. When the Torah was given to us, it says, do not speak Lashon Hara. You know what that means? That means never. Never. It means from the time you're 12, 13, never for the rest of your life, you should speak Lashon Hara. That's the expectation. You should never hate another person. Never. You should never embarrass somebody. You should always love the other person. You should never get angry. You always have to honor your parents. Again, me and you, I'm not sure that we're good at that. But we will always point to my parents. You know what I've done for my parents? I took them here. I took them there. I paid for their flight. I did. I had them over for dinner. That's not, honestly, that's not the measurement of Kibud Avaim. Kibud Avaim has to be always, constant. Everybody has great moments in their life and they're beautiful and I don't say they don't count but that's not the expectation that we have when Hashem told us in Har Sinai uh, you want the Torah we said we're in if they would actually open the Torah and see what's inside I think they would have backed out it's impossible what are you talking about how can I do this the Goim they said could we see what's in it can't blame them and each time they looked inside, they said, there's no way. Impossible, I can't do this. And in truth, if you look in the Torah, it's very difficult. The expectations are super high. That kind of life is not necessarily a life that everyone can do or is committed to doing. Hashem created where there will be two levels of life. There would be a person who keeps a basic life and then there will be people, just like we see in many areas in life, there are people, it's not a bad thing per se if you're extra talented. Is that called prejudice? If I'm more talented than you in certain things? Not really. This guy is a better basketball player. They play piano better. Being better at something doesn't make you look down at everybody. It just makes you realize that you have a greater obligation. Am Yisrael, because of what we received 
from the Avot, we have received something very special, some special genes that we'll talk about a different time, that we are capable of living a much more elevated life. For example, Shabbat elevates our life. Shabbat isn't easy. It takes sacrifice. A lot of it we do have. Maybe some we don't. But Shabbat that's perfect takes a little sacrifice. Now, of course, we know it elevates our lives. But that's the way we, Am Yisrael, live. We have more expectations because we can do more. So when we say, it doesn't mean, oh, you took us out of a hat, there's no reason, and you said, oh, I like you guys. I like the way you look. That's not what it's about. There was a system God made when He created the world that there would be free choice, that there would be a nation or a group that would rise to want more in their life than just to live a simple, human, good life. Those that want to live a very great life, just like when it comes to money. There are some people, believe it or not, that don't want a lot of money. They're just happy with what they have and they don't want headaches. And there are some people that there's not enough money in the world that could satisfy their hunger. Nothing wrong with that. If you have the desire for it and you can make something of it, so do it. When it comes to spirituality and living a godly life, which is above not listening to Lashon Hara, not speaking Lashon Hara for a lifetime. You know what that is? The commitment that we have to the Torah is something that needs a very special, talented person. Am Yisrael, through our fathers, Ahavta Otanu, Hashem, you loved us, meaning you saw something in us that Ratzita Otanu, you wanted a greater relationship with us. By the way, that explains why in Egypt we had the Makot. Why was there 10 Makot in Egypt? So the simple answer is Hashem wanted to show His powerful hand. But in the Makot we see that Hashem treated Am Yisrael different. For example, by the Makav Dam. It says over there that the, the Goy, he got blood in his cup. A Yehudi got water. That wasn't necessary. What was that all about? And you'll see that same theme throughout the Makot. Answer is Hashem wanted to remind us more than I'm just powerful. Banim Atem. Banim Atem means I have a special relationship with you people. I am going to be there for you. A berit, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to do for you what I don't do to anybody else. But of course, more is expected on your end. That's what a berit is. So let's go to that berit. Let's discuss that berit for a moment. I told you before, Hashem told Abraham, I am going to give you, I'm making now with you, a berit olam, an eternal berit. Now, an eternal berit is something very, very difficult to actually uphold. How could you ever make an eternal berit with somebody? It's impossible. And if you ask me, why is it impossible? Because a berit depends on two parties. So I can commit eternally to you. That I could do. But I can't commit that there will be a berit between us eternally. That's impossible. Because 
you have to keep your end of the berit. If you opt out of the berit, there's no more berit. So how can Hashem promise Abraham Avinu that we, me and you and your children, we're going to have a berit olam, a berit forever. How could that be? What if Am Yisrael opts out? What if they don't live up to their part? Let's say they decide, you know what? The Torah is not for us. We're not really going to do, we're going to live like everybody else. So then, what happens to the Bidi? It's gone. How can the Creator make this daring promise that we're going to have a Berit Olam? What happens when Am Yisrael mess up the Berit? Well, look what it says in the Torah. Ve'gam af gamzot. Hashem promises. Af gamzot. Even this, meaning even when Am Yisrael doesn't live up to their side of the deal. That's why I threw them out of their country. That's what happens. Someone's messing up in the house, right? Husband is messing up. What does the wife do? She throws him out. Kish, get out. What kind of marriage is this? We can't be married like this. You don't keep your end of the deal. You don't do your job. You don't care about me. You're not paying the bills. You're not. We can't have a marriage where everything is on me and you do nothing. Everybody would get rid of their partner if they're not doing anything. That's exactly what Hashem did. We were in Eretz Yisrael. We were living the life. It was some years that we had. And then we didn't hold up our end of the deal. So guess what? Hashem threw us out of our home. He says, get out. So now what? What happens when you tell your wife or husband to get out? What's the attitude? File for papers? What are we doing? Going to the rabbi is going to get. That's usually what happens. Usually when someone is not behaving the way they should and it gets overwhelming, he says, listen, this marriage is over. I'd rather be alone. I don't need you. I don't need this headache in my life. That's usually what happens. And we would expect the creator of the world to do the same. He could live alone. He doesn't need us. But look at what Hashem says to us. Even when they will be in the land of the enemies. Hashem says, I will not reject them. I will not destroy them. Beriti itam. I will never break the covenant. That no matter what they do, I will never berit olam. In fact, in fact, Hashem makes sure that we will come back to Him at some point, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But that is the prediction. Berit olam, no matter what. Now you and I both know that that prediction is so daring and so powerful. If you look throughout the Torah, you'll see some amazing pesukim. We've been studying that in the mornings. But this is unbelievable. A little bit of world history and you know that this prediction is way against the norm. All, all nations rise and fall. They don't exist forever. Babylonians, ancient Romans, 
ancient Greeks, ancient Egyptians, Edomi, Ammoni, all the nations that you read about in the history books, whether it's in the Torah or in world history, they're gone. They're not here anymore. That's the norm of the world. And yet Hashem promises that our people are eternal. Not only is there an eternal berit, but that we will be eternal. We will be here forever. The Midrash says, on this pasuk, it's a pasuk in Yirmiyahu. The Midrash says that Hashem showed Yaakov Avinu, Babel, He showed him the future, the rise of the Babylonian Empire. And then Oleh went up, Veyored. He showed, oh, they went down. He showed him Madai, Persia. Oleh, Veyored. Yavan, he showed him the Greek Empire. Oleh, Veyored. He showed him Edom. Oleh, Veyored. Amar lo Kadosh Baruch Hu, Yaakov, Af Ata Oleh. You're going to go up too, Yaakov. So the Pasuk says, Yaakov was afraid. He says the same way they all went up and went down. I'm going up and I'm going to go down too. Hashem, the Pasuk says in Yaakov. You, Yaakov, don't be afraid. You will not go in Tahat. You're not going down. You will never go down. Am Yisrael will never ever leave this world. The covenant, the berit, is forever. This, by the way, has startled not only us in these classes, but historians. Goyim cannot understand how is it that our people have survived for so many thousands of years when the great nations that were more powerful, had more people, had much bigger land than us, had much, much less enemies than us, and they're gone. How is it that we're still around? I'll read you the famous words of Mark Twain. I'm sure you've heard them before. I'll just, I'm going to just take a few words from him. He says, the Egyptians, the Babylonian, the Persian, rose, filled the planet, then passed away. He says, the Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. Says Mark Twain, not a, I'm not sure if he was a big Ohev Israel. He says, all things are mortal, but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? doesn't understand. Who could blame him? He doesn't understand. How is it that our nation is still going? A goy by the name of Leo Tolstoy. He was a, a, uh, <clears throat> a Christian. He writes, The Jew is the emblem of eternity. He who was the first to produce the oracle of God. He who has been for so long the guardian of prophecy. We guard prophecy when we keep mitzvot. 
That's called Veshamru Bnei Israel the Shabbat. We guard the Shabbat. We guard the Halakha. And who transmit it to the rest of the world. Such a nation cannot be destroyed. The Jew is as everlasting as eternity itself. The prediction that we will have, Berit Olam, is so daring and is so powerful. And we're living it today. This is 3,700 years after that statement that Hashem made to Abraham Avinu. And how is it going to happen? How is it that we're going to stay a nation? Let's think. Talk about what, peeps, what keeps people together. What keeps people together? Land, language, common history. Let's look at our people over the last 2,000 years. We've been dispersed, literally, all over the world. We do not have a common land. Stop any Jew today, and you will get a different history. Where his grandfather came, where his grandmother came, where they were 200 years ago, all over the place. We have filled every land on the planet. We've been all over. We've been chased from all over. So we don't have a common land. Sometimes you can meet a Jew and you have nothing in common with the guy. Language, we don't share a common language. If I gave this class in Hebrew, not one person here would stay. Everyone would walk out. So where are you going? So you talk in Hebrew. But aren't you Jewish? Don't you talk Hebrew? I don't talk Hebrew. Jews don't talk Hebrew. Unless you live in Israel, you don't talk Hebrew. And for 2,000 years, who spoke Hebrew? We don't have a common language. Common history, you have to go very far back for us to share a common history. So a nation has no land and no common language and no common history. They're going to stay in this world? How is that possible? Or maybe our, our nation is going to be so peaceful, we're going to be left alone, and that's how we're always going to stay around forever. Oh, think again. Here comes anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a hatred like none other. It's not just, we don't want you in our country clubs. It's not just that. It's not just, we don't want you on the bus with us. It's, we don't want you alive. That's called anti-Semitism. It's not only intense, by the way. It's irrational. It doesn't even make sense. For example, we're the only religion that absolutely prohibits the eating of any kind of blood. Do you know what they do to get blood out of the inside of animals? Today, we don't do it at home anymore, but probably your grandmother or great-grandmother used to do it, where they would salt. It's a whole process. Salt it and rinse it and salt it again and figure out... What are you salting for? Because we're worried about the slightest possible blood that might be inside to get it out. They still do it today. We're the only people that have such a craziness about blood. And yet we're accused of eating matzot made with blood. It, choose something else. Out of all things they could have chosen, it doesn't even make sense. 
In Europe, they accused the Jewish people of poisoning the wells of Europe. But they forgot that we were drinking from the same wells. Irrational. Doesn't make sense. And this has been going on throughout history. I saw a professor that did a study for the Israeli government in 1987 who talks about the uniqueness of anti-Semitism. He says, I quote, the uniqueness of anti-Semitism lies in the fact that no other people in the world have ever been charged simultaneously with opposite things. People accuse us of opposite things. For example, we're alienated from society. That's one complaint about us. Or we're all over the place. We're so involved in everything. We're capitalists and also we're communists at the same time. And on and on. There's no, he has a whole thing. I'm not going to go through it. And in his end, he writes, everything and its opposite is a reason for anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism is irrational. But guess what? It's been with us for the last, I don't know how many thousands of years. So what's the chances that a nation has no land, no language, no common history, and now they have all kinds of holocaust and pogroms and hatred and we're being thrown out of every country. Every person listening in this room, listening on a recording, will give me a different history of their family. Oh, we were here and then they went there. When they say they went there, they didn't go there. It wasn't a vacation. They got thrown out of there. Or they had to run away from there. Or someone was almost put in jail there. Our people don't just go places. You don't just move your family. We've been running for thousands of years. Just the last 200 years, take your family tree and you'll realize you've been in different places. I saw one time a man in Panama. An older man, very old man. I said, I said, how did you get here? He told me, I couldn't believe the story, but this is what he told me. He says, the truth he says, I was in Hala, I was a little boy. I think he was eight or nine. He says, I got on a boat, on a ship by himself. Okay, honestly. And he says, wherever the ship stopped, that's where he got off. It stopped in the Panama Canal. So he got off. And that, he, he became Panamanian. Now, maybe it's an exaggerated version of a story, but, whoa. But guess what? Most stories are something like that. We've been running. What's the odds that a nation like this is going to have Berit Olam? The Babylonians could have do it with land, with nation, with power, without anti-Semitism. Have you ever anti-Babylonians? There's no such thing. There's no, this, 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 this concept. Yes, there's hatred in the world. But something like anti-Semitism, it's unique. Something unbelievable. Books written about it. All kinds of people right now, as we speak, planning all types of things. Anti-Semitism has been real for thousands of years. By the way, as an open parenthesis, anti-Semitism actually 
has been the tool of the creator of the world to make sure that we never get lost. Just remember that. Anti-Semitism is so irrational that the only rational about it is that it comes from the Creator. It's a pasuk. If you think I'm making it up, I know it's not what you like to hear or maybe what you're used to hearing. It's a pasuk openly in Tehillim. The pasuk says, Hafach libam lisno amo. The first anti-Semitism that we experienced as a nation was in Egypt. When the Egyptian nation, for really no good reason, came and put us into slavery. Says the Pasuk, Hafach Libam, Hashem turned their heart to hate our nation. Why? Because we started to integrate too much into Egyptian society. When we had first Yosef and Yaakov, we made sure to stay in Goshen, we stayed separate. In fact, Yosef tells his brothers, if they ask you, what are you guys good at? Tell them we're shepherds. He said, because they hate shepherds. So this way you could stay in Goshen by yourselves. You don't want to be here. You don't want to be assimilated with the society. And that's what happened. But then all of a sudden, the Pasuk says, otam. The land of Egypt became full of the Jewish people. They're all over the place. The Hazal say they were in the theaters. They were all over the place. What happened? Hafach libam lisno amo. Why is hafach libam the way to keep us? Because when we integrate, let's think for a second. How is it that the nations that we spoke about are all gone? What happened? They all died out? They didn't die out. There was no mass holocaust of the Babylonians. There was no end to the Romans. What happened to them? Answer is, that there is a rule in life, a rule, a, a rule in sociology. Basically, it goes like this. When a nation, when a person comes from out of town, an Italian comes to America in 1908, okay? He smells like pizza. He has tomato sauce all over him. He's dressed like an Italian. He talks like an Italian. The whole thing. The accent, the customs, the whole thing. What happens? He comes here. All of a sudden, the neighbor looks at him and says, ah, I, don't like, I don't like the way he smells. All of a sudden, he sees people don't like him. People don't call him to go out with him. People don't want to talk to him. They want to, they want to marry his children. Then he gets it. He says, oh, my gosh. They don't like me because it's called the dislike of the unlike, that's what it's called. Unlike means you're not like me. So I don't like you. It's like the old Halabis, they used to come <laughs> with Zat all over their hands. You understand? The American people here, the SY, so what do these guys, who are these people? What kind of people? Look at the way they dress. Look at their accent. Look at the way they talk. Look at the food they're eating. And they smell too. After a while, the guy says, oh, now I understand why they don't talk to me, they don't play with me, they don't marry me. I get it. It's the dislike of the unlike business. So what do I got to do? I got to start. Put away the zata. Okay. Now we're having meatballs for dinner. Okay. 
That's it. New menu. We're doing July 4th. We're doing Thanksgiving also. You're laughing. That's what happens. All of a sudden, the dress code goes. Whatever they're wearing, that's what we wear. But we didn't, we didn't wear that in the old country. Different world. Today, if we want to be like these people, if you want to be accepted, you got to dress like them, you got to talk like them, you got to act like them. That's what happens. Start getting baseball bats, start hitting balls. Th that's what you do. And then all of a sudden, you're integrated. Now, ask the Italian a hundred years later, let me ask you, where are you from? He might remember, he might remember that his great-grandpa came from Italy. Maybe, maybe not. Why? He's so mixed in to the society, he became an American. The ancient Babylonians did not die, but the culture died because they, they integrated wherever they ended up. It's called the dislike of the unlike. It's normal. That's what happens to every country in the world. Except this rule, by the way, is a rule for every country in the world. Ask, where are they? What happened to them? There were no holocausts for the most part. What happened to them? They just got integrated. They became somebody else. This rule applies everywhere except for the Jewish people. It's the most amazing thing. By the Jewish people, if you study history, you'll see it's exactly the opposite. When we start to become like them, then they hate us. Go study. Study Spain. Study how much the Jews were integrated in Spanish society. They were in government. They were in education. They were leading the country. They're smart. They're hardworking. They're ambitious. They're doing beautiful things. So you would think, okay, beautiful. Now we're going to become one nation. All of a sudden, Inquisition. There's no better example than Germany. Germany, you, you think the Jewish people were from the highest of the Germans. They were the most educated. They had great jobs. They were helping the country. They were integrated in society. I say this in a negative way, obviously, but for our subject, it says that at one point in Berlin, at one out of two marriages was to a goy. To a goy. That's how integrated they were. They were tremendously integrated. These are not people living in a ghetto by themselves, doing their own customs, budulav and etrog. That's not what was going on in, in Germany. In Germany, you're talking about a nation that completely integrated to the point, by the way, where they said, this is the new Yerushalayim. What Yerush they, they ripped out any mention of Israel or Zion or Yerushalayim from the Tfilot. They saw themselves as Germans, as Europeans. So what should have happened? What should have happened is they get integrated and then it's over. That's what happened to every other country in the world. Except for Am Yisrael. This rule doesn't work. The opposite we see in history. The more we become like them, all of a sudden, in Egypt, first example, we became like them. When we came in, we were shepherds. They said, ah, oh, we don't like those guys. You stay in Goshen. We don't want nothing to do with you. Then all of a sudden, we got very integrated in Egyptian society. And now they start to hate us. 
That's something miraculous. The reason why Hashem does that, very simple. Because in order to save our people from getting lost like every other nation, there is this surgery called anti-Semitism. I mean, is there a better example than what's going on right this minute? What has brought Am Yisrael closer to each other? How many people today, I know personally, probably hundreds myself, but I'm sure there are tens of thousands, if not more, that have elevated their life. They took on more Shabbat, they took on mitzvot, they took on talet, filin, they took on things they weren't doing before. People who were nowhere got somewhere, got people somewhere got above that. People taking on more things. What caused that? Not when everything was calm and easy. All of a sudden we felt the hatred. Anti-Semitism is a hatred of the Jew because he's a Jew. But it's also a reminder that you're a Jew and that you'll never be able to live any other way. So whenever there's integration, like one man once said, when Am Yisrael doesn't make Kiddush, Kiddush means separation. When Am Yisrael doesn't make Kiddush, Hashem makes Havdalah. Hashem makes sure He separates us. Because, because there is no way, there is no way that our nation will integrate and fall apart. It's not happening. It's a berit olam. It's a guarantee. In fact, Hitler yamahshemu bezakhra. He made a special commission to find a Jew from three generations before. He was so interested in even a little bit. If you had Jewish blood for three, your grandmother was Jewish. He want you. You're part of the. You're part of this. Uh, this war. Anti-Semitism. So no, we weren't living very peacefully for the last few thousand years. We've been the most persecuted nation in the history of the world. Or maybe we were so many, that's why. You know, maybe there are so many Jews. And that's why, because we're so many, no matter, it makes sense why we don't have extinction in our dictionary. But you know that's not true. It's never been true. Hashem says, Bifirush, in Parashat Ve'et Hanan, Ve'hefitz Adonai Etchem Ba'amim. Hashem says, I will disperse you amongst the nations. And you will remain a small number. Our koach is not how many we are. Our koach measures with how much each of one is, each of us is. So it's not the number, we're very little. So we have nothing in common. We're quite few in number. We have hatred all around us. We're running from place to place. And look at this prediction. Comes Yeshayahu Navi, he says, in the name of Hashem. Hashem says, You know why I chose you? Because you're going to be Leor here. Librit Am. You're going to be a nation that I have a Berit with, like we discussed. Leor Goim. You're going to be the light of the nations. Hmm, let's think. The light of the nations. We're the smallest nation. We're all over the place. We're running from place to place. 
what's the chances that we will be the light of the Goim? Sounds very unreasonable. But as we know, the prediction of the Torah is spot on. Let me just share with you a story I saw from a rabbi working in New York City with college-age students. And he writes that he met this Chinese fellow And this Chinese young man was very eager to learn English. He didn't know a word of English. So he decided he's going to read the front page of the New York Times every day. Every day he's going to finish the front page of the New York Times. That's the way he's going to learn English. Now he wasn't very familiar with Israel. So he asked the rabbi, he says, where is this country Israel? So the rabbi pulled out a map of the Middle East. I don't know if you've ever seen a map of the Middle East. But he says, you see that big green? Okay, right. That's not us. That's Egypt. You see that big item there? Oh, that's Syria. You see that one over there? That's Iraq. That's Iraq. Okay. He says, then he goes, you see that dot over there? See it? Right there, that line that goes like this? Looks like, a, looks like a highway. He says, oh, that's Israel. If you notice, by the way, they don't put the name Israel inside the country on the map. I don't know if you notice that. Every country has zechut. They put the name of the country inside the country. Look at every country. The name is in the country. But Israel's name is in the Mediterranean Sea. They can't fit it. That's why. They can't put it. They can't write it inside. They have to write it on the outside. It can't fit. In the, in, in the country, it doesn't fit its, its own name. So this Chinese guy flipped out. He says, that's Israel? He says, I can't believe it. He says, how many people live there? I don't know, five, six million, whatever it was at the time. He says, every day, I read the New York Times... He says, in the front pages, only three countries appear. United States, Russia, and Israel. To get a story on China, there has to be like 3,000 people died in a flood, and they'll put it like in the top of the front page. But if someone throws a rock in Israel on someone's car, it's on the front pages. Five million people? can't be. They took a census in China. Maybe I told you this once. In China, they took a census. How many people live in China? This was not maybe 20 years ago. So they got to a number of 1.1 billion Chinese. 1.1 billion. Okay? It's a lot of people. But they said that this census could be off up or down 5%. Do you know 5% of 1.1 billion is? Yes? That's 50 million Chinese that we're not sure if they exist. You understand? Up or down, 50 million. That means, that means, think about it. That means 
there are 12 times as many unknown Chinese, right? Safek Chinese, we're not sure, than there are Jews in Israel. Le'or goyim. It's all over. Who could deny it? In any area in life, whether it's values, no question, that's not a question. We are the people of the book. Whether it's in business, you go to any country, you go to any city, it doesn't make sense. You go to any trade show, you go anywhere. If a person doesn't know the real facts, there's no question. He would think there are billions of them. Or goyim, the amount of Am Yisrael that is accomplished in all areas, whether it's in medicine or in any area in the world history, is staggering. The amount of charity that's given in this country alone by Jews is something beyond understanding and not necessarily religious ones. Le'or goyim. We've always stood out, even though we are a very small number, wherever we go. That's what Abraham was told by Hashem when he told him. He says, He took Abraham outside. He told him, Abraham, look to the heaven. And go count the stars. Are you able to count them? And he said to him, This will be your offspring. One great rabbi explains, what is he saying over here? What does that mean? This will be your offspring. So he explains beautifully that Hashem tells Abraham, Go count the stars. What does Abraham do? He goes to count the stars. You can't count stars. Too many stars. You can't count stars. It's not possible to count stars. But what does Abraham do? He goes to count the stars. Hashem says to him, Ko Your children will be like that. Things that will be impossible for people to imagine, they will not stop dreaming of. They will do what people say is impossible to do. They will strive higher. They will work harder. They will get more. They will do more. This is our nation. This is who we are. It's in our blood. It's in our DNA. We are an orgoyim. Yes, Hashem is Elokenu. Yes, absolutely. When you say that, that part in the Amida, Elokenu means Hashem has a special place for you and I. The point is not to be arrogant about it. That's not the point of the Amida that you should feel good because Hashem is thinking about you. The point is that you should realize your responsibility. I once told a person who wasn't acting so appropriately, an older fellow, and I keep telling him, you know, it's not the right thing, I can't control myself, I can't do it, I can't do it. It's very hard for me. I told him, listen, if tomorrow they appointed you the Rosh Yeshiva, of a school of 2,000 children. I says, how would you walk around? Tell me. He says, oh, why would they appoint me? I said, just get past that. You're right. (laughs) They would never appoint you. (laughs) But just imagine that they appointed you. 
How would you walk around? How would you dress? How would you talk? Would you be more careful with your actions? Would you be more careful with the way you speak? Obviously, he says. Well, obviously. You see, when you know your responsibility, somehow you step up. The word Elohenu is there to remind us of our responsibility. Hashem says, you're close to me. You're in my heart. I am there for you. I'm thinking about you. The goal of that is to remind us of what we are responsible to do. We have much more to do than the people in the street. We have a greater responsibility. I just want to end off by telling you that there is a... Uh, the Havot Levavot, one of the greatest books in the history of our people. In Shara Behina, where he talks about appreciation of the creation, appreciating what we have in life, and so much more. Over there he writes in Perekhe, he says from the greatest things that we should study to appreciate and be thankful for, he already went through having a mother, having a father, having a body, having health, whatever it is. He went through all of that. He says a person should reflect on all the miracles that happened to our people. Ten, the ten plagues, Kiriat Yamsuf, Matan Torah. Okay, great. Hashem did us special favors. When we have special favors, special responsibility. So think about that. And then he says, what's this? This is written about a thousand years ago. He says, if a person, he could have been living right this second when he read this. He says, if a person is living today, in his time, and he says, you know what, don't take me to Kiryat Yamsuf, I'm not in the mood to think about the history. Show me now. I want to see now. Show me miracles today. Show me. He says, I'll show you something that's very similar to them. He says, Yabit be'ain ha'emet. Look with a good, honest eye. He says, Omdenu ben ha'umot. How we're standing amongst the nations. Just think today about just the state of Israel. This little, tiny, tiny, tiny country. Surrounded by billions of enemies. Billions. Some, they openly say it. Some don't openly say it. Billions of enemies. He says, Me'et ha'galut. This has been going on from the time of exile. He says, she'anu bilti They know we don't agree with them. Ve'hem yod'im baze. He says, and you'll see that our situation amongst them he says, whether it's in finances or in many other areas, he says, sometimes it's better than them. They're the ones, we're by them, we're by them, they hate us, and that our situation is somehow better than them. The Ya'abetz says, the Ya'abetz in his Sidur writes, he says the famous words, he says, 
אין אומה בעולם נרדפת כמונו. There isn't a nation in the history of the world till today that is being chased like us. He says, we have so many enemies. He says, What would a philosopher say? A very sharp philosopher. What could he answer to this question? He says, could this be all a mikre? All a accident? He says, Listen to these words. Hainafshi means, I swear, says the Abed. Ki behit boneni. When I study, when I see, beniflaot ha'ele. When I see the situation of Am Yisrael in Galut, and the way we live, and the way we succeed, and the way we accomplish, against all odds, gadlu etzli. He says, they're greater in my eyes, yoter mikol hanisim. From all the miracles and all the wonders that Hashem did in Mitzrayim and in the desert that we ate man, He says, I swear to you, this galut that we're in is a greater miracle than all of that. Those are very strong words. Some explain that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was told by Hashem after the Egel. Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, Hine anochi koret berit, I'm going to make a berit. He says, Neged kol amecha, in front of your nation, e'ese niflaot, I will do wonders, asher lo nivreu bechol ha'aretz, ubechol ha'goyim. Wonders that no land and no nation ever saw. I'm going to make wonders for you that nobody ever saw. And they ask, what wonders? Kiryat Yamsuf happened already. The ten makot happened already. Matan Torah happened already. They're already eating the man. They already have the be'er. They already have the... What, what wonders? What are you talking about? Some explain this. Today, that we, today here, amongst the goyim, in Galut, and seeing all the growth, and all the energy, and all the... That's the niflaot, says the Ya'betz. That's the wonders, Hashem says, that no nation and no land ever saw, like the Pasuk says, Zecher asa lenifleotav. Hashem, He gave us a reminder for all the miracles of the past. What's the reminder? The reminder is our existence, exactly where we are. Some explain, that's why we say, Vehi she'amda, la'avotenu velanu. Notice that when we say, Vehi she'amda, we raise the cup. And they ask, why do you raise the cup? Vehi she'amda, which means the Mitzrayim Galut wasn't only in Mitzrayim. Vehi, the promise of Hashem, of Berit Olam, although we're celebrating the Exodus, He she'amda la'avotenu velanu. We have to raise the cup because we have the same stories to tell over about the wonders that Hashem is doing for us. I have to tell you one more thing. I'm sorry. You could just, you could leave, you could leave. I'm really sorry. Just walk out. I really don't mind. It's just for the viewers. Just. I have to tell you this. Listen to this Gemara. Awesome Gemara. Masechet Sanhedrin, Daf Sadizain. Says Rabbi Abba. If you want to know when the end of days is getting close, Mashiach is getting close. You want to know when? He says, he says, this is the greatest sign. 
Okay, good. The greatest sign of Mashiach. That's coming close. What's the greatest sign? He says the Pasuk in Yehezkel. Pasuk says, now this was said when Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael was desolate. He says, Ve'atem Hare Yisrael, you, the mountains of Israel. Hashem says to the mountains of Israel, means when we come back to Israel. Anpechem titenu, start giving your branches. Ufiriechem tisu, start carrying your fruits. Le'ami Yisrael, for my nation, Yisrael, ki kerevu lavo, because it's getting close to Mashiach. Says the Gemara, that the land of Israel will not produce for any other nation. And when it starts to produce, then you know it's getting close. Just like a mother who loses a child, and she can't live life exactly the same, there's always some mourning in her life. Hashem says the land of Israel will mourn like a mother who lost her child. And it will not grow. You ever hear about the fertile Middle East? You, look, you go to Israel today, you know what it looks like? Amazing what, what's growing there. The land, the, the wealth of the agriculture. You think it's always that way. Let me read for you what a man says about it. Here's that guy again, Mark Twain. You ready, Mark Twain? You know, leave Mark Twain. Let me tell you what the Ramban says. The Ramban says, this is the Ramban in the 1200s. The Ramban says he, went to, he made Aliyah. He wanted so much to live in Israel. They have a shul in the old city, the shul of the Ramban. The Ramban did everything he could to make Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael. He says, he writes, this is what he writes. He says, what should I say about this land? He says, it's desolate. He says, The holier the site, The greater the destruction. Yerushalayim, yoter hareva minakol. It's the most destroyed land, Yerushalayim, in the 13, 1200s. All destruction. It's a desolate land. That's in the 1200s. Mark Twain, 1857, look what he writes. He says he went to visit the land of Israel. He wants to see this beautiful land. You ever hear of the land that's flowing with milk and honey? You heard of that land? He heard about it. It says it in the Bible. So he's coming to visit the land of honey. Where is it? He says, he says, he describes as a land devoid of a single, no, the, the valley and the Galil is devoid of a single village. The Galil is unpeopled deserts. Yericho is a moldering ruin. Bethlehem he says, is untenanted, not, not lived by any living creature. He says, Yerushalayim is a pauper village. He writes, ends, Palestine sits in ashes. It is hopeless, a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. 1857. Unbelievable. 
And there's many more stories that people went to visit. That's not the land of Israel that we saw. The land of Israel, promise, will stay desolate without its people. Hashem is Elokenu. He keeps our land waiting for us. When we came back to Israel, we're seeing Baruch Hashem, the great connection that Am Yisrael has with Eretz Yisrael. That's what we mean when we say Elokenu. Elokenu means we know you're thinking about us. We know you have a special place in your heart for us. We know you want more from us. We believe in you. And we're committed to do our job. Just like you're Ne'eman to us, we want to be Ne'eman to you. We're ready to be married to you. We're ready for the Berit to be two-sided. We are committed to be your people. We're committed to be the Merkava, the chariot that brings the light of the Creator into the world. When we walk around, people say, wow, that's what a God looks like? Look at the way they are. Look at the way they look. Look at the way they talk. Look at where they get married. This is our commitment to the Creator of the world. Elokenu is a commitment. Last week we spoke about a commitment in marriage on both sides. And today we spoke about a commitment between us and Hashem. Hashem is there for us at all costs. And we, in our Amidah, say Hashem, we're committed to you. We're ready to be the best of the best of your people. Baruch Amen ve'amen.